Hi, it's Jay here. Uh, before we begin today's conversation with Lee, just a warning that we do discuss topics of a sensitive nature, including suicide and depression, which some listeners may find distressing. That's all from me. Uh, let's get back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and as ever, with me is James Fender. Good afternoon, Joseph. And on today's episode, we have someone a little bit different. Rather than your usual guests, people from the bike industry, professional cyclists, etc., uh, we have a man called Lee Stevenson on the show. He's 43, and he is a police officer with the East Yorkshire Police Constabulary. And he has a story to tell us about how cycling has helped him in his life. And we're not going to give away too much because I think the best person to tell us this story is Lee. So we should just probably get into the episode now. So Lee, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, If you just want to give us a quick explanation as to why you've come on today uh no problem guys thanks very much for having me firstly as i said i'm 43 years old um i live in east yorkshire i work in east yorkshire as a, a police officer um police officer for the last 20 nearly 22 years uh and recently uh diagnosed with complex ptsd ocd depression uh, anxiety which all go hand in hand basically and uh Hence why I'm here now. So I'm hoping that we can, you know, just put a bit out there for people to maybe either relate to or take something from this, really. Yeah, so Lee, you you got in touch with us, actually. So it's probably worth explaining to the listener. Um, Lee got in touch with us not too long ago, basically said, explained that he was a police officer, suffered from PTSD and that cycling had sort of helped him in his recovery from that. Um, So we thought it was a great, you know, we wanted to tell Lee's story and have him on the podcast to do so. So I think the best place to start, Lee, is, what did you say, 25 years ago you joined the police? Do you want to talk us through when you sort of walked into that first um, training centre and why that happened? At the age of 18, I was a, a firefighter for five years. And um, I saw, at the time, I was a, a returned firefighter, which is basically your part-time firefighter for my local station. I saw an advert for the police, and thought I'd apply. It was never, you know, sort of the ambition to be a police officer or anything like that. It was just, I suppose, at that sort of age, I was 23 then and thinking security and, and it could actually be quite good, you know. So I applied, got through the process and started um, on the beat in 2001. And that's where it started, five years on the beat there. And then Progressed from there into specialist ops, the firearms department, um, which obviously deal with your more sort of uh, violent uh, incidents, not just gun crime, knife crime, um, back up to more violent uh, incidents that maybe need attending and dealing with. And that's where I stayed for oh, pretty much a good part of my career, really, 14 14 years-ish, I think. And then obviously things changed in 2015 for me. So where where did you operate? Where was your kind of your patch then being from East Yorkshire? For my uh, force, which was North Yorkshire Police or is North Yorkshire Police, um, it's a big uh, force. I think geographically out of 43 forces or whatever it is now, I think it's the fifth largest geographic so although population is is not huge it's a massive area the firearms base we had two because of the sizes of the the area to cover so i worked out at tadcaster which it's near york it's um if you like john smith's breweries is breweries there so um yeah it's famous for that many moons ago we were able to get discounted beer as well as as cops at the factory so that was always a bonus as well that stopped but hey ho you can't have everything can you so yeah that's our base and and basically we'd we'd gone up there every morning a team of maybe 12 13 putting cars out two in a car and off you'd go your daily patrols the role requires constant training constant pressure to pass qualification shoots 
tactics, whether that's um, building searches, vehicle tactics, you know, you name it, the, the, that's what you had to do. What kind of, um, what, what made you think I want to apply for something? So going from being on, on the beat to being someone that's uh, part of a special ops um, armed team. What was the kind of motivation there? And how long did it take as well to make that transition? Because I'm pretty, I'm guessing you can't just do like another couple of months in an academy and off you go. As daft as it sounds, I remember I was at York Police Station and I had a prisoner. I'd just turned up in my Peugeot Expert van, no air conditioning, you know, <laughs> body armour on, sweating to death. And I saw at the time the Volvo T5, which, you know, the, the traffic would use. And it was a, it was a, clash machine back in the day and it pulled up and two cops got out of it uh, gucci shades on um they looked very cool in the fact that they probably had air con in there <laughs> and and i looked at and i remember saying to the cop you know who's that and they told me oh that's the arvs your armed response vehicle and i thought i fancy some of that even just for the air con if anything you know and and but being serious obviously yeah i, I thought Whenever I've set out to do something, I've always wanted to achieve what I've set out to do. And, and I saw that and I thought, yeah, I fancy it. And, and luckily for me, my old beat sergeant was, had moved back to firearms as the firearms um, sergeant trainer. Uh, and he contacted me and said, we're recruiting. I think you'd do well. So I applied. And back then it was a, there was a two-day assessment which was intense, really intense. I think it was designed, you might think two days, not that long, but it, it was intense and designed as such to be intense. And a lot of people didn't get through. And then you got selected to go on the course, which was shorter then. I think it was about 12 weeks. Um, it's longer now. Um, but because we've had additional TAC med qualification, which is, you know, for trauma injuries bullet and but they do that as part of the course now whereas we did it as an add-on but yeah so 12 weeks um intense course pass or fail every week was a assessment at the end of the week have you met the criteria no you haven't you're going thankfully got my head down stuck in and and got through it and then off you go to your relative you know your force your firearms team and you know i remember them first days thinking whoa, you know, I'm putting a gun on and this is it for real now. You know, it's the pressure of that, but it's then it's the qualification shoots coming up. Your very first one, I remember my first one, you know, you've passed your course, you're out on, on the cars, you're doing the job that you're trained to do and X amount of months later, you've got to re-qualify on your shoot. It was the most nervous I've ever been because you stood with lads who've been shooting and in that department for years and years, you know, and you're the new sprog, regardless of anything, you know, a big thing as well. You want to fit in, don't you? Wherever you go, you, you know, and for me, it was one of them, keep your head down. And once they start taking the piss out of you, then you know you're accepted. Yeah. That's usually how it works. So then you, you do well because you, you're part of this firearm squad for quite a long time. Can you talk us through what, what was like your normal day? like a regular day for you as an armed response vehicle in the Yorkshire area, what were you doing? As I say, if, if you was in the Met, I'm pretty sure that you'd just be dealing with firearms incidents on a daily basis. Mm. For us, obviously, it's, it's different. We, we have got firearms incidents, whether that's we'd crew up and we'd patrol to each car, get sent to a east-west um, and central area and when you're not dealing with anything that came in you was gonna you was doing general policing duties you know um whether that was some traffic high profile policing because of the nature of our role we wouldn't get tied up in things that were too protracted unless there were firearms incidents because obviously they can come in at the drop of a hat mm. so the, the extremes could be you're dealing with somebody for speeding one minute and the next minute, you know, there's a call received that somebody's brandishing a firearm, a crossbow. And, and not only that, you've got the people that are wanting to self-harm, you know. Mm. Um, we were method of entry trained, so you'll have seen the big red key, we like to call it, on TV. 
mm. uh, to get in the doors. We were trained in that. So on a general day-to-day basis, policing changed. When I first started, there was very li- little direction for the ARVs because we were seen as this specialism. We were free to sort of patrol wherever we wanted, really. Policing mm. changed, needed to be more um, directed, proactive. So things came about where when we were not uh, dealing with our main issues, then we would be used for, like I said, high profile, things like that. It's got easier in a sense because there's a lot of technologies to assist you on a day-to-day. Mm. But ultimately, it, it, it was directed by a radio and that could go from one extreme to the other. But then I guess you had... You did have those extremes during your career, so there must have been there would have been incidences that would have been very high pressure. I assume. And are, are there any sort of that you remember from your time as an armed response sort of officer? Yeah, I mean, there's we've had an incident where there was a report of a man had been attacked with a, a large knife. Um, obviously, how it works, you get firearms authority from your your control room, silver commander. Um, to arm and and tactics are then you know put in place so off we go and yeah there was a uh, a young male who had been stabbed seriously and he was close to death Um, and whilst dealing with him you still got in back of your mind that there is somebody around with a knife who's already shown that they're willing to use it Um, thankfully one of the, the the beat cops that turned up at the scene was an ex-A&E nurse. So she cracked on with the individual who was obviously um, suffering from the injuries he'd, he'd received. And we went on to uh, deal with a male who we found down a passageway brandishing a knife. It took him a long time to decide that he was going to drop it. And in your mind at that time, because at the time I was carrying the launcher, the baton, your rubber bullet that you'll have seen in Ireland back mm. in the day, I had that because it's called a less lethal option. So one of the officers will always try to have that with them so mm-hmm. that we can always have that option of a less lethal than using a conventional firearm. Um, yeah, pointing it at him and thinking, if he doesn't put it down and I don't take the shot with a less than lethal option, will will this, will this my colleague have to shoot him? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, and that's where the teamwork comes in and... You are hoping that they comply, but they they also know how far they can push it. You know, I've had those. I've had, you know, the man on who's bridge in York, who not long after the seven seven in London, he he rang to say that he had a bomb. He was on the bridge and he was going to detonate it. And that obviously, with terror threat escalating, it, it you know it was you're driving there thinking is this the one you know is this is this it because it is a massive tourist attraction as york and and you know thankfully it ended safely it, you know he, he was actually shot with a, a baton gun and and he went to prison for it and those are the type of incidents that from one day you can be dealing with nothing to in a heartbeat i can't there's that many of you know People with crossbows, people with knives, um, people with imitation firearms. That you've thought, this is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to shoot this individual. Um, but this may seem odd, but they are. I found them the easy ones because that's what you're trained to do. Your training is such that you can you can deal with that. The, the ones that are difficult are the ones where it's your road traffic fatalities, your your hangings, you know, your self harm. I found, not at the time, but I'm sure as we go on, those are the things that have put me where I am now, really. So how do you feel in those in a moment where you get a call to attend um, someone that's stabbed somebody and you know that that person is going to still be on the scene and be an aggressor? What's going through your mind? I, I won't lie, there is excitement. There, There is, because that's what you've trained to do. Um, it's like anything you train and train and train, don't you? And, and you want to deal with with it um in real life and yeah i suppose it's like people training for the tour de france and then actually riding the tour de france it, it, it's like that it's excitement it's a, it's adrenaline mm. um which has all got to be controlled obviously but then you just slip into your training it, and and it is that feeling of it takes over because you've trained so much you don't even think about it you you, you know you you 
what weaponry do we need? What is the threat? What's the intelligence um, about this mill? Do we know anything about him? Do we know him as a police force? Do we know that um, he's done this before? It's constant. The radio's going off, you know, other people are shouting up that they're coming as well. So you have got a mass of different feelings. Nerves, I'd, you know, I'd be lying if I said that you aren't nervous because you are. And anybody that says they are, I would suggest is, is you know, trying to give that big bravado because you, you are, you are nervous. But there is excitement, there is adrenaline. It's just keeping control of all those feelings and keeping them in check, ready to deal with whatever's there, really. And how do, so when you, you're going through your initial training, obviously there's the practical side of things, like you're saying, there's the shooting training, there's the tactical training, um, there's a lot of physical training, I'm guessing, too. But beyond that, how do you train for the kind of psychology of it? Do they train you in how to react? Are there psychiatrists or psychologists on the course that are kind of saying, so when you're in a high-pressure situation, these are methods to help you deal with it? No, there isn't. And that's the, you know, my opinion is the the lacking because there isn't anything from a professional who will say, this is what you might feel, this is ways of coping with this. You know, you know if this happens, this is what your body may feel or if you do see somebody deceased it there's nothing like that and and that did surprise me because i thought there would be a lot more of part of the course psychometric testing and 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 things like that and and there wasn't and the actual dealing of emotions and the way you may feel as a result of seeing this or doing this it was left to you really it's got better i would say but i still don't think that on courses that that is something that's delivered you know so for you lee when was obviously your your incredibly successful arm response when was the changing point for you when did you start to notice maybe as you said you weren't as you weren't going to do your 30 years maybe something wasn't quite right it was 2015 i was called to an incident of a uh, suicide by a female with a shotgun, elderly female, and her, I believe it was her husband that had rang up. And we're, you know, we're bimbling there because, you know, there is no crazy rush. The, the incident's dealt with, but there, there was forensically recovery of the weapon, etc., etc. So we get there and... I remember my colleague at the time saying he, he didn't really want to deal with that aspect of, i.e., the lady, because she's still in situ. She's still where she took her own life. So, yeah, I'll do it. One of us needs to do it. You know, we need to recover the firearm. It needs to be photographed. Basically, just so if there was any issues around it, i.e., was it suicide, et cetera, et cetera, mm. it, it's all boxed off and, and everything's done properly horrendous to see obviously but no worse than other things i'd seen on multiple occasions whether it was a shotgun or a a hanging or whatever it may be and dealt with it end of the shift off i go no no, as far as i was concerned no dramas i i was as per and as the months of that year went on even the weeks but months go on i i knew i was changing in that my tolerances were less, as in the anger. Nightmares started of that incident, uh, graphic nightmares. You know, I would see the lady at the end of my bed in the state she was in, and it scared me to death, you know. It, it was intense. And these things happened, my mood changed, but I didn't see it really. I mean, the nightmares, I just thought that's one of them things, it'll go. My colleague my close colleague Mick who I worked with on the cars for duration of my career really you pair up with somebody every shift and I paired with him most of the time so he knew me inside out I I always maintain he's my longest relationship ever you know Um, we spent that much time together he knew me inside out and likewise I remember him saying to me that shall we get some counselling sorted because you've changed. I was angry. I was pushing people away 
who were close to me. Was that in your personal and work life? Work was, I don't think, any, only Mick sort of noticed the change because I'd become very good at hiding how I was, um, how I was feeling. The sleeping was an issue. It was constant and I was resorting to night nurse. And I don't mean just, you know, the prescribed, I, I would get that bottle and I would make sure I, I downed it a decent amount to get me to sleep because I was exhausted, but I was going to work pretending I was okay because I had the fear of losing something I'd worked hard for. Mm. Would they take that firearms permit off me if I said I need some help? So yeah, Mick realized these things had started and I'd changed. Um, and he got me counseling through the police firearms association, which is, an unbelievable organisation, charity that was set up by a great guy, uh, Mark Williams, who ex-firearms for the Met. And they offer support. He set that up. We paid a subscription per month and there was support there because there was nothing in place for firearms officers, mentally, mental health-wise, um, after shootings, anything like that. There wasn't really... The, the Federation are there, but they're un- encompassing everything within policing. The Police Firearms Association was purely sort of that for that role. So Mick contacted them and instantly they got me counselling sorted back in 2015. And it's probably hard to speak about, but was there a particular moment you remember that was your lowest during that time? Yeah, certainly in that, when I was reaching the end of 2015, there was a time where I did, and nobody knew about this, that I would, I was sat in the, uh, the cubicle, the toilet at the Nick. And I thought to myself that I'm carrying a, a sidearm with nine millimeter rounds in it. I'm struggling big style here. And I could sort this out quite easily because I didn't know what to do. Really. I, I was, I was at the end of my tether with it. And I'd not spoke to really anybody about it. Well, I hadn't, simple as. And I think the only reason the rational party kicks in on that occasion was Mick. I was concerned about my best mate that if I did that, he would see that. He would be at work and, you know, because it has happened in other forces. And and I thought, no, that's not right. He's got his own shit that he's dealing with that 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 would be so selfish for me to do that right now and and the rational part kicks in and I was low you know that's obviously when I got some counseling through them um and I attended it um with symptoms back that I wasn't diagnosed at that time with uh PTSD it was more of an anxiety issue I thought I was embarrassed but I did attend but I told the party line and I said, for me, I said the right things so I could get it done, get back, and away we go. Nobody knew that I was attending these sessions because mm. obviously it's confidential. And I continued, you know, up until where we are now. You, you, you know, I, I continued to go to work, pretend I was all right. Relationships came and gone as a result of things. And it spiraled. You know, you know, there's only so long you can maintain that. And, mm. and people might think, you know, wow, you, you, you put an act on f- for that long. But you, you do, you do. Um, and when you are concerned that will I lose my ticket for firearms authority? Will I then be chucked into some role somewhere else? The stigma of it, male-dominated environment, weakness, those are all the things that make you try and carry on and as a result of that your home life and you away from work becomes affected you know and you're almost looking for somebody at work a criminal to become aggressive so that you can take some aggression out and I don't mean unlawfully but I I mean just so that you can deal with them and get some frustration out. You said that you managed to you went to this counselling that was put on by the police, but you, as you said, towed the party line because you were worried about 
losing your firearms ticket and your job. So then I guess you were still kind of descending for a while after 2015 because you were pre- you were pretending that you were fine. You pretend you you know you tick the boxes. So when was it that you sort of conceded that no, actually, I do need to talk about this and I do need to confront my demons on this? With my current partner, we've been together a few years and she sort of entered this, um, my world, if you like. And even when I met her, I put on this, you know, how you should be. Uh, that, that's how the man should be, you know, not shouty, not this, not that. And it was hard doing that. We had a little girl, Charlotte, who's three now. Um, I've got a stepdaughter, Emma, who's five, and, and Callum, uh, who's 15. And things hit rock bottom when things started to affect the kids at home. And I was ashamed of what I'd become, how I'd become in that it could be this the smallest thing they they would do. They could spill a glass of water on the floor. I would overreact and I mean shouting and I, I just couldn't control that that anger. Mm. And there was times where the kids would whisper to mum because they were scared to say something. And I remember going into the garage and crying my eyes out because I thought, what has happened here? The kids are scared of me. I pushed family away. I'd wait seeing family, um, friends. I'd... COVID for me was the best thing to happen because I'd no longer had to make excuses not to see friends, not to see family because I was pushing them away prior to that. Well, now it was great because I didn't have to do that that COVID did that for me. But as a result, obviously, everything got taken out on the kids, my partner. And and there was a time where I was in the car. I'd gone to work and driving to work and I saw a wagon on the opposite side of the carriageway driving towards me. And I thought, if I drive into that now, they will be better off without me. Because if I do that now, they won't have to experience dad shouting anymore. Dad tempers, uh, moods, you know. Uh, and I thought that'll end it because nobody deserves to be putting up with me anymore. Mm. And I was close. That's when things got close to where I wanted to kill myself. And if it weren't for the kids and, and my partner, and I think... I probably won't be here now because I'd have uh, the, as much as you, it's hard to explain, but I think you take it out on those closest to you because you, you know that they'll always be there and, mm-hmm. and you, or that's what you hope. So it's those that are closest to you that get the brunt of it. So I, I, I reached that bottom and I, I was sat in the car and I, I basically, I'd, I, as a result of this, I'd started binge eating as well because I, um, I'd stopped drinking back in 2015. I hardly touch any now um, because of, you know, it was becoming too easy to take a drink back then, night nurse, all that stuff. So I I um, started binge eating. I put weight on massively. I'd always kept myself fit, put weight on. That spiralled um, other health issues. But with that, I felt lethargic. I weren't really doing any exercise. So I went to the doctors and I weren't going to tell him anything. I weren't going to tell him about the thinking about ending my own life. And I just told him about the physical side of things. What happened? He did some blood tests and I came back as high risk type 2 diabetes, which was a massive shock to me because I'd always been fit and healthy. He then rang me a couple of days later, did the doctor because he felt something more was wrong and he mm. got a feeling. And that's basically because I was nearly crying in his, in his office. You know, I, I was holding it in. He rang me and said, is there more? And then that's when I, I, I coughed everything, how I was. I run work, 
got emergency uh, assistance through a scheme that we're paying to for uh, counselling and just asked for help. I needed help because I couldn't cope anymore. And then what? Where, where did you go from that? Because I mean, that's it's a it's a a huge amount to unpack. And who who did you do it with? Did you have a, a kind of single um, counsellor that helped you through, or is it multiple people? And you know, we went at the top of um, our chat today. We, we mentioned cycling, and that's and you were talking about keeping yourself fit and stuff. So where how do all those things kind of weave together? And I guess how do you get a perspective? Did you ever feel like suddenly you, you had a new perspective? Like how do, how does that work? Because it seems like in, uh, such a a corner to be in and a dark corner. How do you get out? It it, it was. I, I felt like I was trapped and there was no way out. Um, but I will say, when people, you know, the saying of "it's okay not to be okay," it is. I the biggest thing for me is. I took that step. I got a point, a single point of contact at that point, which was a counsellor via um, Teams because of COVID. Um, and it, it was an emergency interim counselling while work can set up within their own occupational health to see what, what we need. And the lady I dealt with, it, 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 she was great, and, and, a, and a guy who was also part of that. But they soon came to realise that actually we're not qualified to deal with you. Um, we believe it's PTSD. Um, so we need to refer you on. Going back to the cycling, obviously I'd had this scare about the type 2 diabetes. And I, I've obviously since had a, a diagnosis of OCD. I've always known I've been a little OCD. You know, I like things in their place and and this, that, and the other. And it was always a running joke with the, with the kids and the missus, you know. But what happened, I got back into cycling. I bought myself um, one of the Wahoo Kicker and because it was winter time, and, and i become obsessed with cycling because of the type 2 diabetes in that I was thinking, I don't want that. I don't want that on top of my mental health problems. So I was hammering the cycling. And at that point, I was hammering the cycling more for to get rid of this thing that was hanging over me of the, the type 2 possible diabetes that I might get. And in whilst that was happening, I then got occupational health from police. I started sessions. They were talking about EMDR therapy, um, which is basically, it's an eye movement desensitization. Um, reprocessing that's the title my understanding is that they train your brain basically to deal with things that you've dealt with um by way of eye movement it it, it sounds a bit hocus pocus uh, and and you know i'm the first to sort of be a little bit skeptical about these things i'm still yet to start that basically this was difficult the police offered that but I had to I had to attend a police station to to do that therapy. Well, that's no good for me, and I'm sure it's no good for many other officers mm. who, yeah, there'll be officers there who can go to the police station. I couldn't go to the police station. I'd become to a point where I, I I was in a mess if I, you know, had to go in that building. So it was difficult, um, and and my therapist Karen from the police was unbelievable she got me to talk about things that I'd never spoken about it was like the floodgates had opened you know everything came out as to how I was feeling and I then basically had a psychiatrist session and he diagnosed me with the complex PTSD the um, anxiety OCD and some depression, and, and, and I am now on medication. But things changed from the cycling. I'm now, I'm two stone lighter, and I lost that in three months. That's how focused and obsessed I became on the bike for more of a uh, medication than, than enjoyment. Mm. But now I've reached a stage where cycling for me is the only time I can go out and I don't have to, think about anything when i'm feeling low 
bad thoughts because you have to concentrate. You have to stay alert on the bike, focused. You know, you know whether that's traffic, potholes, where you're going, and I, I'm I'm covering probably 200 miles a week. That is my, as well as the you know tablets I'm taking. For me, that is my medication. So it switched from being something you did for physical benefits to something you've do, you now do for your mental health. Yes, definitely. It, it, it changed from an ob- obsession because I was focused on getting rid of this weight. I need to get rid of my blood sugar back where it needs to be to now. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm still obsessed with it. I, mm. I, I, I'm itching to go out, but I'm itching to go out because it it you know, it releases them endorphins. It, it, you feel positive. Now, if that endorphin kick is only for an hour after the ride, it doesn't matter. It, it opens up other avenues. We lost a colleague back in 2018 who took his own life as a result of mental health issues, which were work-related. And there's now a cycling group, which is TAC, it's called, Tour the Aki Cycling Club because uh, Aki, Nick Atkinson, was the, the officer who sadly took his own life. And every year we, we, we meet up and we do a ride in 106 miles, which relates to his collar number. And as part of that, a cycling club was formed and it's all about getting out, mental health. And it's bizarre because I know that's what the club's about, but even when this was all going on and I'd got this diagnosis, I was making excuses not to go ride with them even though that was why they were there, you mm. know? And in the end, I did tell them what was matter. And again, it, when I go on about this talking, it's massive because there isn't the stigma. And, and cycling, it is a social activity. And it, it, you know, I've done it on my own. I can ride on my own. I can ride with a group. It doesn't matter. But the social part, whether you go for a ride for six miles to the cafe and have a uh, have a cake whatever the 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 positives from it are immense you know um and i can't say it enough really it, it's i have been in the deepest darkest hole ever and like i said to you earlier you know without being dramatic it's part of the reason i'm still here yeah wow and and when when you're going on those on um like Riding tour the Aki Tack Club rides, and most of the other riders, um, ex or serving officers, and you know when you're talking about this sort of stuff, what's how do those conversations go? What kind of reactions uh, do you get, say, to your story, or, or, or what, what's that? What's that kind of culture, and has that shifted since you know 2015, or even? way back in the early, um, mid-2000s mid when you started on the force. I'm assuming it's, well, you touched on it before, so very male, macho-dominated place. And that's not, you know, that's not a traditional place for blokes to talk about stuff, is it? You're right. It, it's not. You, you don't talk about it. And certainly back then, for me, you didn't talk about that. And you, you only have to sort of look at suicide rates. You know, 2019, was it three-quarters of the suicide were male? And it, I think ultimately it boils down from that not talking. And yes, back then, 2001, when I started, right up to only recently, you wouldn't talk about it. There was a stigma, and I'll be the first to hold my hands up. If somebody back then said they were off with mental health, they off, you know, officer, oh, yeah, yeah, they just want some time off, or what's up, man up, that, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, I've said I feel guilty now for feeling like that back then of other people who probably were suffering because until you experience it, um, it is real. And and, uh, how I've sort of the therapist explained to me is that with men, you know, you lose a leg cycling, you'll, yeah, it's awful, but we'll typically we will get on with it and we'll find a way to carry on and we'll certainly find a way to still ride our bike somehow and we'll, we'll, we'll crack on. It's different when it's mental health because I think you can't see it, you know, mm-hmm. you can't see it there. And, and with TAC, it's, it's, it's good because we, we met, the ride was Saturday, just gone. 
So um, the hottest day of the year for us round here, you know, and that only has to be 19 or something like that. (laughs) Ultimately, you know, there was 90, I think there was 96 riders of all levels. I mean, you know, it's amazing because Aki was a great guy, top lad. Um, he, He wasn't your stereotypical police officer, what people think, you know, he was a, just a, you wouldn't think he was a cop. If you met him today, you, you wouldn't believe that he's a police officer. And so as a result of that, he's a big network of friends. So we all turn up, we all do it. And the members of TAC, which I think about 25 of us are actually part of the cycling club. Um, I saw people there who I'd not seen for some time because of um, me not attending rides, you know, being um, hiding away, basically. And... It was good because they knew why I'd not been there. And, you know, with lads, we don't tend to have to say right lot to know what the other one means, you know. Um, And people saying, you know, you look well. And I was able to say, yeah, I feel I'm getting somewhere. And, And it's just knowing that if you need to talk, you can. Um, And that there isn't that stigma. So the club, you know, from my point of view, whether I only get to, because they're based about an hour away from me, I don't always get to ride with them anyway through logistics, but you know they're there. You, you, you know they're there. They're always doing things. There's always things planned. I just feel that we need to move on from this stigma because things are still not great, you, mm. you know, and I'm sure that's not just in the police. It, it'll be all walks of life, whether you work in an office with a load of lads and, st- you, you know, um, things do need to change. For me, I was able, I was fortunate that I took that step um, to do that. How is, how are your family now? Have they seen a marked difference? And your old partner, Mick, have they seen, are they seeing a new Lee? Yeah, well, Mick, my, um, Mick, my ex-colleague, yeah, Deborah, my partner, now I've had it out in the open with her because what how it was working was I was hiding it. So all she saw was anger, moody, low moods. She assumed that something was matter with our relationship. She assumed that we were going to separate. Um, now I've been out in the open. I've told her this, medication, therapy things are better uh, i still have my moments and i'm still not out the woods um you know i'm i'm waiting for more psychiatrist sessions so we can get to the root cause mick my ex colleague from work he didn't realize how bad it was until he saw the psychiatrist report which i showed him i, I said i can't tell you about it cuz i don't want to really the best way is to read it and he said that it made him quite upset to read that from a point of view that I suppose it was, you know, to the point, you know. So family life is better and there have been nothing but supportive. You know, you, you, it's difficult to not get upbeat when you, you come home from the Aki ride on Saturday and your daughters have drawn a big banner with, we love your daddy on the window, you, you, you know. So th- those are the points where it picks picks me up, and I just have to remember those things. You know, I've pinned it up in the garage, and, and I can go look at it if I'm training on the. Tra- I can look at it, you know. So, yeah, things are getting better, and I'm 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 going through the process of work now, where I'm highly unlikely to return to to being a police officer. Wow, I was going to ask you about where where you're at with with your career. Um... And obviously to sort of try and forecast the future is incredibly difficult. But looking back on where you've been, who you've worked with, do you now kind of realise that there were colleagues um, beyond Aki, that is, of course, who were in not dissimilar situations? And what advice would you have given them if you knew what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I do look back and I do realise that there was colleagues who were struggling and Without a doubt, the the advice I would say to them is go speak to somebody, whether that's initially to your partner 
or the doctor or, or to me, whoever, speak to somebody and tell them how you're feeling um, and that it's not, it's nothing to be ashamed of. This macho thing that we carry around, it should have gone in the dark ages, you know. We're, 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 we're different now and pressures are different, not, not just in policing, just running a family, just running a, a podcast, you know, they're, they're all relative. They're all relative to you as an individual. And, and it's picking up on the warning signs and, yeah, just talk to somebody. Do things you enjoy as well, because I found, obviously, those things I enjoyed, the cycling, it stopped and, you know, it spiralled and things got worse and worse. You need to talk and you need to take the things in your life that actually make things feel better and just get away from this stigma. And and career-wise, it was a big shock, obviously, hearing from a psychiatrist report that as long as you're in this profession, you will n- never recover. The likelihood of recovery is slim, and that, that's in any form. You know, because I have tried to work in an office-based investigation role, and I tried it. Um, you know, I even tried it working from home, and I just got... The, I just got worse and worse again. And it basically, yeah, you need to be away from that environment. And that is a big shock because you, you expect, you know, your 30 years will be up. I'll retire. I'll get my, my pension and off I go. Um, and that was hard to deal with. Obviously, that's sort of a blow. But I've come to the point now where I do want it to end. I do, I do want to be, because it sort of feel like I'm trapped, you know. Uh, I'm I'm trapped i'm in limbo i'm waiting for you know the things to happen that and i I get that there's things in place that need to happen before you can be medically retired etc etc so i understand that you can argue that some of the things prolong it and when you're dealing with ptsd you do become paranoid you you become is it taking this long because they don't believe me is it taking this long because they're trying to get one over on me? Do, do you know what I mean? It, 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 you do become paranoid. You think everybody's out to get you. You can receive a text message from your your friend and you think, are they checking up on me? Is it work? Um, but, you know, once that happens, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to focus on what I want to do. And ultimately, I, I'd like to um, crack on and do my SciTech mechanics for cycling and completely different and and you know tinker with bikes basically and maybe do a, a little bit for myself um on other people and you know I'd, I'd like in the future to maybe look at the possibility of setting up groups around the country where they can attend a ride doesn't matter about level and and it, it's almost like tack but on a scale where it's out there for for anybody to go for a ride and hopefully if they need to have a chat, the, the onus will be on it, it, the cycling is there for us to get out, but there will be people there. If you want to have a chat, have a chat. I was told that I've got to think of the future. You have to do that because if I don't, once that happens in this say you are going, it's now what you've lost your identity. And you? I was a police officer for X amount of years and, and that's gone. It's a really powerful story, Lee. Um, I think that's a, quite a nice place maybe to end it because sort of a good message to end it on there and really just hammers home I guess that that point about having to talk and as you alluded to whether that's because you're a police officer or you work in an office or you're struggling with home life and just being honest and being honest to other people um it's also worth mentioning you've been doing some rides as well for Mind Charity which is obviously one of the most noted sort of mental health charities in the country, et cetera. And- yeah, two, 270 miles uh, last month. Um, it, it was supposed to be over two days and then it got sprung on me a couple of days before. Well, do you fancy doing it in a day? Well, I didn't want to say no. You know, it was good and it's for a charity that was obviously, you know, something personal to me. So you're right. If anybody, like I said to you, if anybody listens to this and only one person thinks, yeah, I feel like that. I feel like I'm, I'm going to speak to somebody. Then we've achieved something, haven't we, um, ultimately? Because I'd hate for somebody to go 
the way that I went and, and even possibly the worst case outcome, you know? So I do appreciate you guys letting me come on because I know it's not your usual celebrity or cycling, you know what I mean? Uh, so I do appreciate it because I'm sure you've got loads of celebs waiting. I and Joe really appreciate you contacting us, but also just for being so open and candid about it because I think that's a really important thing is people to see that and hear that because it's one thing to kind of go, yeah, yeah, we should all do it, but to actually have it demonstrated is some seriously powerful stuff and... Yeah, just uh, yeah, it blow, it blows my mind. It's a, it's an important story that needs being to be told and as told as much as possible. So there was our interview with Lee Stevenson. Um, incredibly honest, incredibly open, um, and as James said, humbling. Yeah, the very definition of it is a desperate cliche, often used by people like us in the media to try and convey that something that they just born witness to is as in, you know incredible as it is be, when they have no experience themselves because ultimately that's the thing you know you listen to someone um likely and it is overwhelming in a, in a big you know in a very obvious sense that's they, these are complex situations we've never found ourselves in and incredibly difficult situations emotionally and let, never mind the rest of that impact on your life but you know a lot of people will have experienced and also a lot of people won't. So yeah, humbling is the word and just thoroughly lovely chap as well. That's the other thing. Like we're having some good crack with him um, off there. Uh, he definitely gets the miles in. He's he's looking good. He's, a, he's definitely, he, he take if he's knocking about in East Yorkshire cycling, he'd take us to the cleaners. Uh, easily. 200 plus miles um, around <laughs> in that neck of the woods. Goodness me. Um, but yeah, just just can't thank you enough really for coming on and getting in contact in the first place um wanting to do that because that's the other thing pretty bloody brave i wouldn't want to do it very brave yeah exactly very brave you know it's worth noting that lee got in contact with us again he just dropped us an email just out like out of the blue but he basically told us he wanted to tell us his story and he did there's not you know we're not going to really try and add anything intelligent to the conversation james and i as we don't we're not really the authorities to do so but what we will say is that you know hopefully if you've listened to this and it's helped that's amazing if you feel like you want to talk to someone we're going to pop a link to the mind charity in the description below which is a mental health charity that does really great work around the UK for those suffering with mental mental health issues and yeah that's probably all I've got to add on that one there James we should probably leave the episode there um, and if you like this, obviously, if you like this episode and you liked how it was a little bit different to what we usually do, do let us know, you know, and let us know if this has helped. Because it's really good to know that sort of stuff because it sort of can sort of push us in this direction again to maybe tell more stories like Lee's in the future as well. So, um, James, let's call time on this episode and we'll catch up again soon. Last one. Thanks for listening.